News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. At this time of year, we tend to start getting the, you know, look back at the year that was and the big stories that kind of shaped the news. Well, that's actually kind of the idea behind the What Happened to Global News podcast. This is season two that is launching today, and they've got 20 brand new episodes, and there's some great topics that they're going to be covering, actually, including the very first episode, which deals with the topic that we love to talk about here on the show, and that is murder hornets. So joining us now to talk more about that is Erica Vella, global news reporter and host of this podcast. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Simi. All right, let's start with the murder hornets because I know you dove right into it. You got whatever happened to them. How come we don't hear about them anymore? Oh, um, that's a good question because uh, there has been a lot of developments and I'm not going to spoil it because people should listen to the episode. Um, But, you know, with this uh, episode, we really go back to the very beginning and uh, speak with Mafita and John uh, Holabashin, who live in Nanaimo, B.C., and talk about the uh, first nest that was ever found in North America uh, of an Asian giant hornet nest, a murder hornet nest. We also talk about that name, actually. Like, how did um, they're they're known as Asian giant hornets, but you know they've been given this nickname, murder hornet. So we get into all of that on on episode one, and it's a, a really exciting uh, episode. That I'm excited to share. Well, I was reading the story that goes along with it at globalnews.ca, and just the the stat that got me, um, Erica, was the fact that the win, wingspan of a murder hornet is seven centimeters long. That's huge. Yeah, I spoke with uh, one expert, uh, uh, an entomologist, who compared it to a small uh, hummingbird. Almost, that's that. These these are the biggest of their kind. They're an apex predator, and um, what what really um, is makes them quite interesting is the way that they raid these honeybee colonies, um, and and they put honeybee colonies here, especially North American honeybees, uh, very much at risk. So that's the big concern with having this. Uh, uh, species being found here in North America, what could it do to local honeybee populations? Oh, okay. I can't wait to hear more about that. How do you decide on the topics that you cover? Because you've got quite a wide variety for season two, including uh, Coney 2012, which seems so long ago now, but whatever happened to that? You know, um, so with this podcast, the great thing is, is I have people always kind of talking to me, you know, working in news, people, uh, I've had family, friends, they they just assume that you have all the answers when it comes to news stories. Um, so I thought this would be a really great idea for a podcast. And I have to say, um, we also have people writing into us sometimes, you know, asking us uh, to look at certain stories that, um, that they have a particular interest in. And overwhelmingly, the story that uh, I have been asked about most is Coney 2012. Um, so we, uh, in on this season, we it's a two-parter. Coney 2012 is a two-parter. Um, we revisit um, the actual film that was released in 2012 by Invisible Children. Um, it was that 30-minute film that uh, highlighted um, the LRA and Joseph Coney, who they are, what they've done, and um, 
sort of the fear um, and and terror that they've inflicted on on people uh, living in Uganda and other uh, countries in Africa for for decades. Um, so we cover that, but we also, um, you know, we actually speak with a, a gentleman who was uh, formerly captive. Uh, he was held by the LRA uh, for several months, and he speaks about his experience. So it, it's a fascinating story that we cover over two episodes. I think so many of us wonder about that, right? These stories that happened in the past and we get ourselves so worked up about them and they seem so important at the time. And then they're, you know, they just kind of disappear. And do you find, is, is that hard for some of the subjects too that you go back to to think they would probably still need the attention in some cases? Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, I, you know, I work in breaking news uh, oftentimes, um, and I work as a, a reporter for Global Toronto. And you see, we cover these these events, um, these major news events, even locally. Um, people who are at the center of them are often bombarded with, with, with media. People are wanting, you know, media are wanting right. to know what, what's, what's happening. Um, but then it, it almost as quickly as it comes, it, it kind of fades away because we're always looking for the next, the next the next story we're covering the next story that's happening um but there's a lot you know it doesn't mean that the the person that was affected at that one time the story ends for them it continues in different ways so it's really interesting being able to talk to people at the center of these stories to talk about the arc of of their experience and how it's really shaped uh the trajectory of their life so what are some of the other topics covering for season two um, one that I'm really excited about, because this season, um, not only do we cover massive news events, but we are looking at really fascinating people, people who once really captivated audiences. And um, I, I don't think that a, a person epitomizes that more than uh, Ted Williams. Uh, he was uh, nicknamed the man with the golden voice, All if right. you recall. It was, yeah, it was over a decade ago um, that a video was posted on um, on the Internet, uh, by a, a man named Doral Chenoweth. He worked for the Columbus Dispatch. He's a journalist for the Columbus Dispatch. And it was of a man who was experiencing homelessness. He was holding a sign that says, um, I have the God-given gift of a great voice. And when you hear him speak in this video, your like, jaw just drops. Like, he, is, it's, he has an incredible radio voice. Um, he, I spoke with him for one of the episodes, and he... Um, I was I was telling um, some colleagues of mine earlier, actually, that, you know, what's really interesting is oftentimes when we do these interviews, and Simi, you could probably relate to this as well, you know, people can be pretty guarded in terms of what they yes. share. Yeah. That wasn't the case with Ted. He was just an open book. He shared the good, the bad, the ugly. He was from everything from his childhood to, um, you know, dealing with his addiction um, to the moment of fame where he literally became an overnight celebrity and how that moment, that, that brief moment in time really shaped uh, the rest of, you know, what has happened since and, and his life. So we speak with him. He gives us that firsthand account. We also speak with Doral Chenoweth and um, that's a fascinating story. Wow. Okay. I can't wait, wait to hear that one too. So thank you so much for joining us on this, Erica. No, thank you so much. And uh, just to let people know, the uh, episodes are uh, dropping every two weeks. We also have season one that's available for anyone who hasn't listened um, to season one. And it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever uh, people listen to their favorite podcasts. Excellent. I'll check that out. Thanks, Erica. 
All right. Thanks, Jimmy. Erica Vella is a global news reporter and podcast host. Got to check this podcast out. It's called Whatever Hap- What Happened To? And season two is just launching today. And some of the episodes is, yeah, they're talking about murder hornets and Coney 2012 and Ted Williams, the Notre Dame Cathedral Fire, the collapse of Rana Plaza. Some of the season one topics, as Erica mentioned there, the Fukushima nuclear disaster, the ALS ice bucket challenge. So these are all topics you wonder. They were huge stories, but what happened after the spotlight was no longer shining on these stories. This is Mornings with Simi. As you've been hearing in the news, all workers in BC will be eligible for five sick days as of January the 1st. So yeah, just a little over a month from now. That announcement coming yesterday from the provincial government. Why settle on five, though? We know there were business groups who said, you know, two, three would be okay. And there were unions who are pushing hard for 10 days of paid sick leave. Settled on the number five, though. But let's find out why that is. Joining us now is Labour Minister Harry Baines for more on this. Thank you for joining us. Hey, good morning, Simi. So why settle on the five? Where did that come from? Yeah, so Simi, first of all, I think we, um, we, we've got to talk about uh, the, the important lessons we learned during pandemic. Uh, one was that uh, workers were going to work when they were sick because they, can't, they couldn't stay home because they didn't have any paid sick days available to them and they couldn't afford to lose wages. So they brought wires to workplaces and that wires spread to other workers. <clears throat> Those workers then went home to live with their families and communities and uh, COVID numbers you know, went up and hospitalization and deaths. So there's a huge uh, human cost of not having paid sick days. And then on top of that, uh, that virus spread at workplaces caused many businesses to be shut down. In the Fraser Health Authority alone, April and uh, May, two months, they, they had to shut down over 180 businesses for 10 days, sometime more. So I think the cost of economic cost is much higher as well. So I think when you consider the human cost, the economic cost, it was imperative that we have basic leave available to all workers. Now, how we settled at five? Yes, there are uh, groups who were pushing for 10 plus. Others were saying, don't do anything. It's bad timing. Uh, business is already hurting. But we, uh, you know, were supported by data and research. Uh, many places that have a paid sick leave um, in North America um, United States and, uh, and Europe, uh, data suggests that uh, when people went to work, they call presenteeism, went to work sick, it cost twice as much more than, they, than if they stayed home. And in the United States, it cost businesses $150 billion every year. That's the cost of presenteeism. Workers going to work sick, loss of production and uh, spread of the disease in workplaces, so I think uh, when you, when the other part that, that supported are why we came at five was that uh, those that have a paid sick leave available to them, uh, on average, they use um, five days or less. So I think that's how we settle at five days. We believe that is the, the right balance. It will uh, be sufficient for workers um, uh, to, to stay home and recover and at the same time is not too much burden on businesses either. Okay, let's talk about that, though, because I know a lot of businesses have said, listen, this is already a very tough time for them. They will be shouldering the cost of this. Are you concerned about that? Of course you're concerned. Um, you know, businesses have, uh, have gone through a very, very tough time, just like anybody else in the last 18 months uh, due to pandemic. 
And uh, we're not out of it yet. Um, but again, that's why we uh, we stood with businesses. I think BC was the uh, the, the province that uh, supported business on per capita basis more than any other provinces. And that's how we were a bit better successful uh, dealing with the COVID uh, in, in, in this province than other provinces. But again, uh, when you look at uh, cost of not having paid sick days, it's much higher. And in loss of productivity, uh, cost of... Uh, um, uh, increased cost in, in, in attraction and retention of trained staff, recruitment and training cost, reduced presenteeism. So when you consider all of that, I think it is uh, the right thing uh, for businesses. It's the right thing for workers, and it is the right thing for our society. That's why we're doing it. How will this be monitored, though? I mean, for some businesses, they may just say, you know what, I can't do this. Well, look, uh, it is not the option. It is the law, just like minimum wage, just like the vacation pay, just like the overtime pay. There is an enforcement regime uh, we call Employment Standard Branch. If a worker who feels sick, uh, who's entitled to paid sick days, uh, stay home and the employer doesn't pay, uh, they could go to Employment Standard and there's an enforcement and um, uh, the worker will be paid then. So who does this apply to then? If somebody out there doesn't have sick days right now, they want to know, does this count for them? Well, any worker who's covered under the employment standard, uh, anyone who has employer-employee relationship, they're all covered, uh, whether they're union, whether they're non-union, uh, or whether they're part-time or full-time. So they're all covered um, uh, workers that are covered by the Employment Standard uh, Act right now. Uh, we're later on going to be talking to the um, the head of the BCGU about this as well. They're not happy. They wanted 10 days. What was the downside to doing 10 days? Well, again, like I said, um, you look at the times we're going through. Um, uh, the modest cost of uh, of uh, having sick days, um, uh, you know, enforced on, on businesses at this particular time. We we looked at the cost. We looked at the benefits. And, and we look at the... Uh, the, the uses of, uh, of it uh, from places where they have paid sick days available to them. Uh, and to do some comparison here, right here in British Columbia, uh, Simi, you know, we brought in in June the temporary COVID-related illness paid sick days, uh, three days where the government would reimburse the employer uh, $200 per day per employees. Uh, so far, uh, only 2.2 days have been used. They are entitled to three days. So I think uh, five days in, in our estimation is sufficient um, based on data and research available. And it's, it will not cost the uh, employer. I understand they're concerned about it, but the data and the research shows it does not cost employer um, uh, very much. It costs the nil or, or very little. Uh, but the benefits are um, uh, far greater uh, having paid sick days available to their employees. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thank you, Simi, for having me. Labour Minister Harry Baines talking about the government's decision to be the first province in Canada to offer five paid sick days to any employee in the province who doesn't already get sick days. And that, I think what we learned in the pandemic is, that actually covers a lot of people. So does this impact you? Can you now say, as of January 1st, you know what, if I need a sick day, I'm going to take it. This is Mornings with Simi. All eyes, of course, are on the weather right now. We know the heavy rain has started in some areas, in areas that are already trying to rec- trying to recover from the storms that we had last week. So let's find out what is going on right now. Joining us is Jeff Colson, meteorologist with Environment Canada. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. So where is it raining this morning? 
Well, as you mentioned, it's raining pretty much uh, across uh, much of southwestern BC with this latest system uh, that is coming on shore. Uh, rainfall right across the lower mainland, uh, some uh, reports of moderate rainfall in areas like uh, Abbotsford. And as you also mentioned, probably not what people want to hear, given the way the month of November has gone so far. Right. So we had a lot of predictions about how these storms are going to unfold. Jeff, would you say those predictions are holding? Like what, what, can, what will we see over the next week? Yeah, so we, we do have that rainfall warning in effect for the uh, the system going through today, and we are expecting uh, many areas in Metro Vancouver to get around 50 millimeters, maybe a bit more than that, by early Friday morning. Uh, during the day Friday, a bit of a break between systems. The sun will come out uh, and, and will be a little bit drier. But then, unfortunately, yet another system coming in from the Pacific uh, going to give widespread rainfall again to the lower mainland uh, for much of the weekend. Uh, and then, unfortunately, yet another uh, system forecast to come through next Tuesday. Okay, so is this measurable or comparable to what we saw 10 days ago? Uh, this particular one that we're going through right now into early Friday morning is not. It's a little bit weaker and, and moving through a little bit more uh, quickly. The one on the weekend, there's still a bit of uncertainty. There's a fair amount of variation between the uh, potential precipitation amounts uh, being put forward by some of the weather models. So will probably take till uh, tomorrow before we start to see some more information coming from the Weather Center about uh, potential rainfall amounts for, for Saturday and Sunday. And Tuesday at this point, so a little bit too far out to get a, a good handle on that one. Hey Jeff, how unusual is this right now? It feels like we've only had like three sunny days in October and November. Yeah, it's it's been a little crazy, and and we looked at uh, you know the whole fall season, September, October, and November to try to pull some numbers out for the Vancouver area. And right now, without even including the precipitation from this system or the ones coming on the weekend and early next week, uh, Vancouver's already had the fifth wettest fall season. Uh, what meteorologists refer to as a September, October, November time frame. Um, in, in the records that go back to uh, to 1896. So we, we are going to add to uh, those rainfall totals in the coming days. So it is normally kind of the wettest kind of year for us, or time of year for us, uh, uh, late November, early December. Uh, but this certainly seems to be uh, even more so than what we're used to. Yeah, did we, did we know this was going to happen? I know that we talked about like a little La Nina earlier in the year. Like what what is impacting this? Yeah, I think it's probably going to take uh, the scientists going back uh, a little bit further in time to look at what the factors were that came into play that made the whole season uh, wetter than normal. But what we're seeing right now, at least in terms of the near term and the forecast for the next week or so, is unfortunately just a continuation of this series of um, storm systems coming in from the Pacific. And again, not just impacting the lower mainland, but also uh, some of those other areas that were harder hit uh, in mid-month and also uh, along the uh, central and north coast as well. Okay, so where are the areas that over the next week you think are going to see the heaviest rainfall? Well, certainly, uh, I think parts of the lower mainland could see some some heavy rainfall amounts, but even more so, we're probably looking at the higher elevations, and so some of that could be snow uh, during the course of the next uh, week or so. And, and also looks like even some places up along the, uh, the central and north coast could also get some significant amounts of precipitation in the next week. Okay, so this is, again, just another tense time for us, isn't it? Yeah, a really good idea for folks to stay on top of the latest statements coming from Environment and Climate Change Canada as we get a better sense on uh, these systems as they unfold. And also really important to stay on top of the latest messaging from uh, the folks at the River Forecast Centre. The hydrologists there are going to be watching what potential impacts this rainfall could have. And we could see more in the way of flood watches and flood warnings resulting from uh, the amount of rain that we're forecasting over the next week. It is not over yet. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Jeff Colson is a meteorologist with Environment and Climate Change Canada talking about that forecast. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Hi, Simi. Good morning. Uh, this is uh, five days, six pay. I'm a small contractor, and uh, this will put me out of business. I mean, I already pay 11 stat holidays, you know, and now it's another five days for three people, 15 days. So now I'm looking, I'm looking at about, you know, 30 days of basically working for nothing. Uh, yeah, no, at my age of 67, I've been doing, I've been working since 13. I'm just liable to pack it in. It's not worth it. Well, thank you very much for the call. That's one of the calls we've gotten on our buzz line this morning about the issue of paid sick days. Uh, The number is 604-331-2899 if you'd like to weigh in. The government has said that they're going to be the first government in Canada to do this. They are mandating five paid sick days for every employee in the province starting January the 1st. Now, business groups, business people like the one that you just heard there, said some say it's too much. I can't can't do that. And yet on the other side of thing, we know that workers have said they need more than that. And in fact, many unions were fighting and pushing for 10 paid sick days a year. Well, joining us now is Stephanie Smith, president of the BCGEU, to talk more about that. Stephanie, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me this morning, Simi. And I know the BCGEU definitely wanted to have 10. So how did you feel when you heard five? Well, it's disappointing. It's disappointing. It's a, it's a missed opportunity, and um, yeah, uh, getting only half of that is is definitely disappointing. Were you hopeful? Like, I know there's a lot of lobbying going on. Did you think maybe ten might have been in the forecast? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the vast majority of British Columbians said that. 10 was what they were looking for. We had a broad coalition um, under the BC Federation of Labor. Um, you know, there were businesses, there were uh, physicians. We, you know, um, the seniors advocate is saying, you know, 10 is reasonable. So certainly we were optimistic that 10 would come forward. So uh, again, as I said, disappointed to hear yesterday's announcement. What do you think, though, when you hear people like the caller that we just had there, too, business people who say this is too much? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because certainly in countries where 10 days is the minimum, they've actually seen that it's very good for business. It's good for the economy. Um, you know, and it actually is a very small fraction of business costs. Um, we have seen over the course of the pandemic, I mean, certainly lots of lessons learned, but one of the lessons learned is just how expensive it is when your entire workforce becomes ill. And having somebody go to work when they're sick, risking infecting their coworkers, and more importantly, potentially the public that they serve, is not good for anybody's business. Right. But some of them say it will put them out of business. Well, you know, I can't speak on behalf of those folks. Um, what I do know is that, you know, as things have changed over time, you know, the, the caller mentioned having to pay for 11 stat holidays. I, you have to build that into your business costs. And, you know, uh, again, I go back to saying that research has shown in countries where they do have paid sick time for workers and where they do have it, 10 is you know, the average, Um, it has been very good for the economy and very good for for businesses. So what happens now then, Stephanie? Is this the end of it or do you keep pushing? 
absolutely not the end. No, no, no. Um, you know, I'm an early childhood educator. You know this, Simi, and, and uh, you know, the $10 a day child care has been a long campaign. So we're used to long campaigns and we're used to keeping up the fight. As I said, we have a broad coalition. Workers in British Columbia deserve it. We just heard in the federal throne, throne speech that the federal government is looking at implementing 10, to, uh, 10 paid sick days annually. This fight is definitely not over. Also, is there going to be a challenge, do you think, um, Stephanie, getting the word out to employees? If, if you've never had sick days and you've been in a job for years, is it got to tell people, like, listen, you are now eligible for this? Yes, uh, I think there is a challenge. And I also think there are some other um, sort of barrier concerns, you know, that, that enforcement is going to be complaint-based. Again, that that relies on people being aware that they have that right. Um, and then, of course, you know, having to take on the burden of reporting that to employment standards can be a very daunting thing, particularly for, you know, precarious workers, um, you know, racialized workers, uh, new Canadian workers, we're going to have to do a lot of work to make sure, uh, and government is going to have to do a lot of work to make sure that working people are aware that this is a right that they have. Uh, Was there a better way, do you think, to do that? I think, I think that it, it, you know, again, um, I think that enforcement has to be uh, proactive. I think that people need to, uh, you know, I think there has to be a broad education um, program that reaches working people in multi-languages and where people work. And, um, you know, and I think as the labor movement, we play a role there too, because I really truly do believe we represent all workers, not just unionized workers, but workers in our province. Right. And do you think that also is part of the message that maybe you have trouble getting out there? Oh, um, sometimes I think so. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, one of the other ways, of course, to ensure that there are paid sick days for working people is for workers to organize, to join unions and to negotiate collective agreements. Um, BCGU members uh, in our collective agreements do have paid sick time and it's been negotiated with the employers. Um, I'm happy to see that all workers will now have an ability to, or at least all those that are recognized as employees under the Employment Standards Act will have access to paid sick time annually, but we need to keep the fight up to make sure that it's an adequate amount, and 10 days is where we want to go. All right, Stephanie, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. That is Stephanie Smith, president of the BCGEU, that is the BC General uh, Employers, Employees Union, uh, talking about the 10 paid sick days that unions like the BC Federation of Labor, the BCGEU were pushing for, uh, but what they got was five. That is the announcement that we heard from the government yesterday. We heard from the labor minister as well. They settled on five as a compromise. And, uh, you know, I guess if you're in government If everybody's mad at you, then maybe that was the way to go because you weren't ever going to please everybody with this. Uh, Business people, some business groups are unhappy with this because they say it places a burden on businesses at, at a time when they can least afford to have more burdens after what they've been through over the last two years. And on the other side of things, there is a very tight labor market. And if you can provide a few sick days to your employees, maybe that'll be beneficial to you helping to attract more people to your business. But also, lessons learned in the pandemic, right? Do you want people coming into work sick? This is Mornings with Simi. 
Well, for many people, especially in the United States, this upcoming weekend will be all about shopping. Tomorrow definitely will be all about shopping because it's Black Friday coming right after the holiday, Thanksgiving. Everyone has the day off. So retailers thought, hey, let's get them started on their Christmas shopping. And in the last five to 10 years, we've really seen that whole thing migrate to Canada as well. But maybe we should question the marketing around this. At least that's what Raji Sohal is going to talk about today. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, it basically comes down to FOMO, right? People have deal FOMO. It's a self-perpetuating thing. They don't want to miss out. You find yourself scrolling online for some of these Black Friday deals just to see what's out there. You want to know what other people are scoring. Here's Dave Hardesty. He's a profit UBC School of Business. People like to think they're getting some kind of special deal, maybe even if they have haven't comparison shopped that carefully. I can tell you a research finding we have is this is very preliminary, but I, I still think it's a, it's revealing. Um, a, so if you have a, a coupon for $5 off or another coupon that you get $5 off, but minimum spend of $10, you have to spend at least $10 more. Like that one's actually more popular. The one where you have to spend you have a threshold, you know, you have to reach a threshold to spend it. Or another example is if you have like a $2 off groceries coupon or a $2 off of fruit and vegetables coupon at your grocery store. Actually, sometimes the, the more limited coupon is more popular with consumers. I think just because people like to the idea of qualifying for a special deal. Oh my God. So they're just, they're just, we're, we're suckers for this essentially is what's happening. <laughs> We really are, Simi. We like the feeling of winning something, you know, achieving something, qualifying for something. And that's why marketers are hugely successful with those increasingly popular loyalty programs that we keep seeing, you know, the store cards where they track your points, they make a game out of it, and you find yourself going back to the same shop for more things that you don't need because you know you're going to get a deal off of it. But also Black Friday, it's also shopping ritual for some people. You know, it involves research, planning. A lot of people find that fun. And many people do it with like the same person every year, other family members. So it, it's exciting. It's a challenge. And in these times, let's face it, like people are looking for any kind of fun where they can find it in uh, COVID times. Here's Hardesty again. It's a false sense of scarcity, I think, as part of it as well, right? Because you hear Black Friday sale that it sounds like a one day only sale, right? And we know throughout marketing that generally limited sales are much more effective. It gives you a reason to act because otherwise you might be like putting off your shopping, right? You're like, oh, I know I want to do some holiday shopping. I'm not sure when I'm really too busy today. I'm too busy tomorrow. You just keep pushing it off. But then you see, oh, this Black Friday sale, it's one day only. It's a really like salient marker. And you think, oh, this is the only day I can get the deal. And it just kind of gives you a reason to act right? And do it that day instead of, it's, it's not just any day, it's Black Friday. Oh, that is ringing so true <laughs> listening to that. <laughs> but Hardesty says to me that it's bad for the environment. Black Friday is so bad for the environment because people end up doing mostly their Christmas shopping during Black Friday. And what they're doing is buying Christmas gifts because they're on sale and they're buying these things that might not even necessarily be desired by the person they're giving it to. Here's Hardesty again. So there's a lot of ways that we can give gifts more sustainably. Number one would be uh, if you 
going to be giving a new gift. That's not great to be buying new material things, but used gifts are great. So you can maybe talk to the people around you, your family and friends. I'm always happy to get like a refurbished product or a, you know, a used book. It reads just the same as a new book, right? Uh, and so if you can give used or refurbished things, those are much more environmentally friendly. In a lot of cases, uh, some experiences could be more environmentally friendly. Uh, something you can you can do together and enjoy together that that isn't you know a lot of stuff. Yeah, Simi, I don't think that the regifting is normalized yet. I don't think it's socially acceptable across all generations yet. I do see more young people doing it. I haven't regifted yet um, because I haven't found something appropriate to regift. Like if somebody gives me a box of chocolates, you best believe I will eat that box of chocolates myself. <laughs> I'm not regifting it. Um, but it it has made me think a little bit about this Christmas. Like I personally, if someone gave me a used gift, I would be okay with that. He talked about secondhand books. I would be into that. Would you? Um, I, I give away so many books already, you know, I, yeah. I have a wide circle of, of family and friends that I share books with that kind of go around and around. So I don't know, I'm, I'm more of a fan of, of giving out a gift card so people can do get what they want when they need it, because I don't know exactly what they might need. I, I, f- I fear with regifting that, you know, it it'll just won't be appreciated or I don't know. I, I think I would just yeah. rather help that person get exactly what they need. It's funny you say that because that's actually, that's where the research shows people are happiest. People actually really like being asked what they want to receive and they like receiving what they asked for, <laughs> right? Because one of the, the the problems with gift giving is that you don't know exactly what somebody wants and they may pretend that they like it, but then actually it ends up just going to waste, right? In fact, the, the research on gift giving shows that when you give somebody something they asked for, it actually shows thoughtfulness that you were you know, listening to them and that you gave them what they wanted and they'll be excited. They'll actually be genuinely happy to get it. Although you feel as the gift giver, you feel like you're like cheating a little bit by asking them what they want, maybe. I think that's true. I think you do feel, I have a cousin who is just remarkably good at thinking about what people want and then getting it. In fact, some years she gives me a present where when I open it, I'm like, do, what am I? What am I going to do with this? And then six months later, I'm like, that that was a great present because I use it all the time. So like, she's yeah. so good at that. I just don't have that talent. Yeah, I really like giving gifts. I like thinking about what a person might want. And but I am open now to regifting. I'm really going to challenge myself with this uh, this Christmas. I beg of people one tip though: if you are regifting, please take the original gift tag off. Don't take it for granted. Check the item many times <laughs> no. because last Christmas, uh, someone gave my daughter, uh, who was really little at the time, this like generic uh, kids toy that was for someone eight years older, and. Uh, after she opened it, she's pulling off the tag, a sticker, a huge sticker that said the name Chloe on it. Ooh, <laughs> We're like, yeah, who that's is Chloe? That's My daughter is not a Chloe. Yeah. So don't get caught. Clean it up. <laughs> I also enjoy, I've decided to, like when you make things yourself, that's much more rewarding. Last oh, year, yes. what I did was I gave out Christmas cookie boxes to the wider circle of people that I was giving gifts to. And it, it was the, it was such so enthusiastic. People loved it so much. I'm doing that again this year. But that to me is also very, very rewarding if you can make something to pass on to people. 
Yeah, I think that's probably the best thing. I'm not very crafty myself, but I do like uh, baking. I've heard about these cookies of yours. They're legendary at the office. So if anyone receives those, they're very lucky. I'm sure they would appreciate that. Well, I'm doing it again this year and I'm taking suggestions for recipes that I should be putting in there. But this goes Mm. to also that classic Tom Cruise story. Have you heard this about what he gives people at Christmas time? No. He does the Tom Cruise. He does He gives a cake. So there's a particular bakery that makes a particular type, I think it's a coconut cake or something in California. And every year he orders like 300 cakes from this bakery. And that's what he gives. So he has a list. And some years you're on the list and some years you're not. And for some celebrities, it's like they really want to be on Tom Cruise's list because he gives this cake, which is apparently amazing and delicious. Now, I think that's the way to give gifts, right? Something that they can consume and enjoy and have a good memory of. Yeah, and share with other people. And they know you've put your thought and your heart in it. Yeah, for sure. No, I think baking is a wonderful gift. Although this uh, professor that I had interviewed for this story told me that he re-gifted some baking, some treats that someone else had given him. He re-gifted it. And I I was so curious to see if he told them it was re-gifted. Like, can you be <laughs> honest and transparent about that? He just say like, "Hey, these weren't for me, but I thought you would appreciate them." Yeah, why not? He said, "No, no." Oh. He said, "No, you don't. You don't tell." <laughs> see, that's where I have a problem with that. Raji, thank you so much. Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji Silhal. They're talking about re-gifting. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is mornings with Simi. Inflation. It has become a big concern for Canadians right across the country. In fact, more people than you realize say this is a concern for them. It's something that Ipsos has actually been polling about. So joining us now is Daryl Brooker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, to talk about that. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning, Simi. So how concerned are we about inflation? Oh, real concerned. Um, the uh, During the election campaign, we were probing the issues that people said were most influential to their vote, the things that they were caring about the most. And inflation cost of living was about number five. Today, it's moved up to number one. So in the short period of, you know, probably around a month, uh, the people's uh, concerns about uh, inflation have really, really jumped. And is there something in particular, like, is it the cost of things? A lot of it is the essentials, too, that they're having to pay more for, right? Yeah, I think that it's a combination of things, probably three things. One, I don't think people were feeling things were particularly affordable before. So cost of living was already a bit of an issue. Maybe not a top concern, but was certainly bubbling under the surface. The second thing is that everything from gas prices through to empty shelves through to anything that has to do with the supply chain, even if it hasn't uh, directly affected somebody, uh, they're certainly seeing it out there. And then third thing is we're hearing a lot more about it. People are talking about cost of living issues uh, in the media, for example, more than they've been talking about them over the last little while. We have opposition politicians certainly talking about them in in this country. So I think that what's happened is there's an awareness being raised, Uh, not necessarily um, that people are feeling it directly, but there's concern that they might. And particularly when we follow on this, if they're paying any attention, the potential for interest rates going up and what that might do to people who are really precarious when it comes to things like, for example, mortgages. Right. Is there a particular demographic that is more worried about this? Yeah, as you can imagine, it would be younger people. It's funny that, you know, the first question I was get asked about, is this older people on fixed incomes? No, they're not as concerned. And the reason is they're sitting on most of the assets. They have pretty reliable incomes. Uh, they're not trying to buy a house right now. They probably have one or they're downsizing. So the direct impact on them isn't quite as significant as it is, at least in, in a, on a perceptual way, than it is for younger people. So younger people are more concerned about it right now than older people. Isn't that interesting too? And younger people, is it? are they worried about housing? Are they worried about food? 
Well, everything that everybody's phoning your show and talking about is worrying them. Uh, one thing in particular that's a fairly recent one is the price of energy. So gas prices um, and uh, people see it's an easy one to track. You drive potentially drive by a gas station every day or fill your car up maybe once a week or twice a week. And that number is in your mind all the time and they see it going up uh, over over the last while. And so that that's something that obviously stands out. But as much as anything specifically, it's just the concern that it might get more out of control is what right. really has people uh, concerned. I guess I was wondering, like, is it are they worried about putting food on the table? Yes. In fact, we asked uh, people if they were worried about putting food on the table. 52% of the people that we interviewed, so that's half, said that they feel that they're in a precarious situation right now when it comes to cost of living. But the people who are most feeling that way are people with kids at home. Well, I can imagine that, right? Because feeding a family of four is not easy. Yeah, so 60% of the people that we interviewed, 59 say that they're con- if they have kids at home that they're concerned about being able to feed their family. Now, um, are they uh, worried about their family starving? No, it's not really that. It's just the cost. Um, and uh, so when, when issues are things that hit you right in your house, right in your household, they hit you with your monthly bills, they hit you every time that you go to the grocery store or fill up your car or anything that you buy yeah. or you're used to buying and you're feeling like you're, you're not able to buy as much of it or that you're, you know, the money that you have left to be able to, uh, to get through a month is less that's when it starts to concern you. There are other issues that people will say are important that are more kind of existential, but this is one that really affects people day-to-day directly. And when it comes to that issue, though, putting food on the table, did that differ by province? No, it's fairly consistent across the country. Actually, interestingly enough, it was Western Canada more than Eastern Canada that was feeling that way. And again, probably because when you go to places like Eastern Canada, they, they don't have as many kids at home. They have one of the lowest birth rates in the country, uh, and they have one of the oldest populations. And Well, they have the oldest population in the country. And as I said before, uh, uh, concern about inflation tends to be somewhat age-dependent. So younger populations uh, uh, tend to live out west, not necessarily in British Columbia, which is fairly old in terms of average population, but definitely on the prairie. So Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, that's where you see concern a little bit higher. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so it seems like what inflation seems to do here, Daryl, is kind of get to people's feeling of stability. Well, yeah, it punches through, yeah, it punches through the, the, the noise in the news and you know, all the things that are happening and makes everything really personal. And exactly what you said is what's happening. People are feeling you know, on edge about this issue. So to, you know, say, you know, it's not as bad as it could be, or it's, you know, it's transitory, it's something that's going to go away. Um, people aren't feeling that right now. Um, uh, you know, or to have somebody come out and say, and I've seen economists say this before, you know, Canadians have more money in the bank than they've ever had. Well, people aren't feeling that way. Even if it's true, they're not feeling that way. So at the moment, this is becoming the dominant issue in the country as a result of people's concerns. Isn't that interesting? Daryl, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks, Amy.